Hello and welcome to Nerd Roamer. As always, this is your host, The Cross, and this is the podcast where we reveal the hidden history and science behind the places you travel. We believe the whole world is a field trip that we're all just taking together. We're an audio guide to the world around you. Learn more about the world you explore. We've got deep dives for long drives. This is Nerd Roamer. Roam wisely. As the song would go, summertime and the living is, well, it's really complicated right now, actually. While some have been able to find some respite in parks, on lakes, or by finding their own little piece of the beach, savoring the smell of suntan lotion and taste of the salt on their lips as their only little morsels of summer, the line of canceled barbecues, concerts, fireworks, fairs, and festivals stretches down the street and around the corner. On hold as well this summer is the summer blockbuster movie. That time-honored tradition dates back to a 1975 film with a mechanical shark named after a lawyer. Bruce. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. That's from Hooper, the embattled scientist who's one of the main characters of the movie Jaws. I'm opening this episode with a quote from Jaws because for one thing, it's one of my top five all-time favorite movies. And for another, it encapsulates what we're talking about today. Perfect eating machines. Many have harkened back to the conflict between the Mayor Vaughn and the scientist Hooper with the chief of police Adrian Brody and the other townsfolk caught in the middle as an allegory for the competing opinions and priorities of our leaders during the coronavirus pandemic. I think this just goes to show you what an absolute timeless classic the movie is, because people are still looking to it for meaning today. Based on Peter Benchley's novel, it was released to critical acclaim and set a record for box office earnings that would stand until it was broken by Star Wars a couple years later. But how plausible is the plot? Could a cranky old shark really single-handedly throw a town into terror? Settle in, my friends, because the true story of the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks is as good as any Hollywood could invent. Let's flash back to 1916 for a minute. World War I is in full swing. At the time, it was still considered to be the Great War because we didn't have a World War II to compare it to. There wasn't a sequel yet, so it was just the Great War. And America wasn't even really fully involved in it. One of the most devastating polio outbreaks in history was ravaging New York City that summer. Polio epidemics would frequently accompany the dog days of summer, those really hot days right in the middle of summer. Polio virus rapidly spreads in communal or crowded areas, especially swimming pools and in these public parks where children would play together in the big cities like New York and Philadelphia. The summer of 1916 in particular had been oppressively hot. And the polio epidemic that year was of epic proportions. It was absolutely raging. Parents lived in fear of polio epidemics. The disease was notorious for spreading like wildfire among children. In severe cases, children could become paralyzed to the point that their diaphragm wouldn't work and they would die because they wouldn't be able to breathe. The model of the iron lung respirator called the drinker model that would be the first widely used respirator for polio would not debut until 1928. So if your child became paralyzed from polio in 1916, they were pretty much going to die. And many of them did. In the 1916 epidemic, over 2,000 children would die of polio in New York City alone that summer, with many thousands more left with varying degrees of lingering paralysis that can last for an entire lifetime. With communal gathering places shut down, some families just kept their children locked at home for months. Sound familiar? not feeling safe to let them venture out, not feeling safe to let them play with other children, 
and they would keep them inside until the first frost signaled that the polio season had fully drawn to an end and that it was safe for them to be around other kids again. For families with the financial capability and no means of cooling off in the crowded, plagued city, the summer was a time to flee the city for more pleasant climates. So people would head to the Catskills, people would go to New England, and people would go to New Jersey to hit the beach. All of those were very popular destinations. I'm going to begin our story here at Madawin Creek. Madawin Creek is a brackish inlet on the New Jersey coast. It's just across the bay from Staten Island. It's got these kind of just gentle, placid brown waters. To people living nearby at the time, these held this cool promise of relief on the hottest days of summer. It's very marshy, very calm waters would not look out of place in somewhere like Minnesota or Louisiana. Although, depending on the tides, sometimes the waters will be more like freshwater and sometimes they'll be more brackish or saline. The date is July 12th, 1916. I want to start by having you picture this. An old sailor named Thomas Cottrell is walking along the path to Madawin Village. As he crosses the bridge on Madawin Creek, he wipes the sweat from his brow. The temperature that day is through the roof. It's around lunchtime, and as he crosses the bridge, he eyes the cool water of the creek longingly. Scanning the water with his keen eye, he notes a familiar sight with alarm. The unmistakable, dark outline of a shark about eight feet long. Questioning his own sanity for a moment, he confirmed that he was not in fact imagining things, and then makes a mad dash into town. He grabbed the first telephone that he could find and phoned the town's Barber slash chief of police. So you can see this is quite a little village here. Barber slash chief of police to warn him of what he'd seen. Then he rushed around from business to business, and in the street he would grab boys headed to the creek to swim by the elbow, warning them of the shark and urging them not to go swimming. But the people of Matawan weren't really alarmed. It seemed ridiculous to them to picture a shark in Matawan Creek. Sure, there had been some rumors of a pair of shark attacks earlier in the month on the coast, but here? In Matawan? The creek itself was barely 40 feet wide and 11 miles long at the most, and they were a couple miles in from the shore. It's at this point that we meet the next character in our story, Lester Stillwell. Lester Stillwell is 11 years old. He comes from an impoverished family, and he himself suffered from epilepsy, for which there was very little in the way of treatment at the time. Because his family was impoverished and child labor was common at the time, he contributed to the family income as an apprentice at a local basket factory. With the temperature reaching 90 degrees Fahrenheit by noon on July 12th, he and some of his friends at the factory decided to knock off work at 2 p.m. and head down to the river for a swim. The boys stripped down to jump into the muddy water, with Lester leading the way. After splashing gleefully for a few moments, one of the boys, Albert O'Hara, felt something rub against his leg. Moments later, the group saw a dark shape bump into Lester, and suddenly he disappeared below the water's surface. The water at the surface churned with fresh blood. The boys began screaming, shark, shark, and ran naked into town, yelling for help. Several men from the town responded to the call and rushed to the banks of Madawin to search for Stillwell arriving probably about 30 minutes after the attack because of the time it took to go from the dock to the town and back. Among these men was a man named Stanley Fisher. He was a tailor who worked in the town. He was in his 20s and had abandoned his shop to aid in the rescue. He and the others combing the water for Stillwell agreed that the boys had probably been mistaken and that Lester had probably just had an epileptic fit and had not been attacked by a shark. 
Nevertheless, it was a very dangerous situation, and they knew that locating him as soon as possible would be critical. They commandeered a rowboat to search shore to shore, and simultaneously, some of the men jumped into the creek to begin probing the bottom to see if Lester had sunk. Stanley Fisher was among the men swimming in the creek looking for the body. The visibility was truly horrendous, and the water was extremely muddy and it was impossible to see anything. After a solid half hour or so of examining the area, they began to lose hope of finding the boy alive and sat exhausted on the opposite shore in the shallow water while contemplating their next move. It was then that a sight raised the hair on the back of their necks, the dark shape of a shark cutting its way through the water. After it had passed by, they decided that they were now done with their search efforts for the moment. Can't say I blame them there. Accounts are somewhat conflicting, but it was reported by some at the scene that Fisher, continuing to search on his way back, located the body of Lester and began waving his arms in the air, yelling that he'd located the boy. It's at this exact moment that he screams and is pulled below the water. Fisher's search companion, George Burlow, vigorously swam back to the dock while Fisher fought the shark with all his might. Eventually, the shark disappeared from the area and Fisher was able to drag himself to shore. With Fisher pulled ashore, it was immediately apparent that his wounds were life-threatening. A physician named George Reynolds was present. He laid Fisher out on the dock and found that he'd suffered a femoral artery laceration and was quickly exsanguinating. Fisher moaned that he had seen Lester's body on the creek's bottom and that he'd tried to pull it away from the shark but couldn't. The team there bandaged Fisher's wounds as best they could, but the town had limited supplies for surgery or medical care. Once they'd bundled Fisher up, they got him on a train to a larger city hospital, but by the time he arrived, his hemorrhagic shock had deteriorated to the point that he passed away. So far, July 12th was a very bad day for the town of Madawin. The people living in the town were aware of a pair of shark attacks on the coast earlier that month. So what was going on with that? If you remember, July 12th was when Lester Stillwell and Stanley Fisher were attacked by the shark in Madawin Creek. Twelve days earlier, on July 1st, was when New Jersey had seen its first shark attack of the summer. Charles Van Zant was 23, with dark, neatly groomed hair. He was the son of a Philadelphia physician, and he'd taken the train to Beach Haven, a small resort town just north of Atlantic City, to escape the summer heat. Too excited after checking in to wait until the next day to get in the water, he settled into his room in the Ingleside Hotel and took his dog, a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, for a swim before dinner. He and his dog splashed in the water on the beach, out to about 15 yards offshore. It's at that point that his dog turned and swam back to land, and ignored his owner's repeated calls for him to remain by his side. It was then that Charles Van Sant began screaming louder and louder and louder. For a moment, the other people on the beach thought that he was just becoming really, really angry at his dog, until lifeguards spotted the dorsal fin of a 9-foot shark protruding from the water. One of the lifeguards, Alexander Ott, quickly ran to his aid, pulling Van Zant into shore while the shark allegedly continued following them in until the water was too shallow for it. Some accounts said that the shark wouldn't even let go of his body until they dragged him into 18 inches of water. I don't know if that's true or not, but that would be absolutely remarkable if that was true. Once they got Van Zant on the beach, it was apparent that the shark had nearly completely stripped his left thigh of flesh. They attempted to place a tourniquet to stem the bleeding from his left femoral artery, but by the time he reached a local hospital, he had passed away from hemorrhagic shock. Now this is all getting pretty heavy. We've seen three people die these gruesome deaths because of this shark, 
So let's take a quick, light little side tangent here and talk about Alexander Ott for just a second. Alexander Ott, remarkable guy. At this point, he was actually a former Olympic swimmer working as a lifeguard at this hotel. He would stay in the hotel and the aquatic business for the rest of his life. Eventually, he went on to headline an entertainment show at the Coral Gables Biltmore Hotel Pool in Florida during the 1920s and 30s. The show was called Alexander Ott's Water Follies, and it was performed for guests of the hotel, people like Judy Garland, Al Capone, and even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who used the hotel as a second White House at times. So if you can picture, FDR would go down to Florida sometimes to work when things were a little bit chilly farther north. It is kind of amusing to just picture him sidled up by the pool watching Alexander Ott's Water Follies. The Water Follies show at various times included headliners like Harry Houdini, who naturally was shackled and lowered into the pool upside down, escaping at the last possible moment, of course, as well as the Flying Walindas, Alligator Wrestling, and the star of the show was truly Alexander's son, Jackie Ott, the Aquatot. My only regret is that why don't more hotels have shows like this these days? Because I would definitely love to watch this next time I'm on vacation. But I digress. We'll get back to the gruesome details of these attacks. Back to Beach Haven. While the attack was somewhat unnerving for residents of Beach Haven, sharks were not considered to be very dangerous to humans at the time. And the Northeast in particular was considered to be quite safe due to the colder temperatures of the North Atlantic waters. People just didn't believe that sharks would attack humans unless they were provoked, and many people didn't believe that sharks would even have a strong enough bite to be able to inflict any damage on humans. Despite the fact that captains of fishing and shipping vessels had noted an increase in shark activity in those waters that summer, beaches generally remained open, and bathers went about their business unconcerned after the Van Sant attack. Five days later, so on July 6th, this is six days before the attacks at Matawan Creek, on July 6th, the second Jersey Shore shark attack of the summer occurred at Spring Lake, a beach town in between Beach Haven and Matawan. Beach Haven, down south on the New Jersey coast, kind of close to Atlantic City, moving north to Spring Lake, and then ultimately Matawan, which is basically almost up in Staten Island. Spring Lake was also a resort town, also a beach town with hotels. The particular victim of this attack was a man named Charles Bruder. He was a 27-year-old bellhop, and he was living in the U.S. and working from Switzerland. He had gone out for a swim that day and was about a football field's distance from shore. Nobody really saw his attack occur, but beachgoers did see some red in the water out in the area where he had been swimming, and they actually thought that it was an overturned boat, and so they told the lifeguards that were on duty on the shore, hey, looks like there might be a boat capsized out there if you want to go check that out. So the lifeguards, they hop in a little rowboat, row out to go examine it, and it turns out that the red is actually Charles Bruder's blood, and he's floating in the water there, and he is not doing well at all. They managed to haul his mauled body into their rowboat. They tried to tend to him to save his life, but he wound up passing away from shock as they were rowing him back to shore. So they were not able to save him. They weren't even able to get him back to a hospital, unfortunately. Following the attacks on Van Sant, Bruder, Stillwell, and Fisher, New Jersey had now seen four shark attacks over a span of 12 days. The attack with Van Zant occurred while wading in shallow water on the beach, north to Spring Lake, where the attack on Charles Bruder happened while swimming about 100 yards offshore. 
and then farther north still to Madawin Creek, where Lester Stilwell and Stanley Fisher had been killed moments apart, swimming in the muddy water of a brackish tidal creek. It's at this point that the people of New Jersey began to ask themselves, Is nowhere safe? And who will be next? The people living near Madawin Creek did not have long to wait for the answers to these questions. Back to July 12th. After the town had loaded up Stanley Fisher and sent him to the hospital, Thomas Cottrell, remember him, he's the sailor who had sounded the alarm at the beginning, did not sit idly by as all this occurred. He and several other men commandeered motorboats and started buzzing up and down Madawin Creek, raising the alarm about the shark attacks and imploring those swimming to get out of the water, get out of the water. Word quickly spread among those living on the riverbanks. Joseph Dunn was a junior high-aged boy who was a resident of New York City. His parents had sent him along with his brother Michael out of the polio-infested city for the summer to live with his aunt in Cliffside, New Jersey, the small town about a half mile downstream of Madeline. His aunt's residence was not on the water, and word of the shark attacks had not yet reached them when Joseph, Michael, and one of their friends, Jerry Harahan, decided to slip down to the docks at the brickyard and go for a dip. As they were swimming, none other than Thomas Cottrell comes motoring past them, waving excitedly like a madman and imploring them to get out of the water. Jerry is closest to shore, and he quickly jumps back up on the dock, but Joseph was farther out into the creek. As he was swimming back to the dock, he was violently tugged beneath the surface of the water. Remarkably, Jerry and Michael were able to dive in after him and pull him away and tow him to shore. Thomas Cottrell, seeing this, buzzes into shore, helps load him into the motorboat, and they swiftly bring him back to the area where the Madawin villagers were actually still gathered from the earlier attacks. There, they noted that Joseph Dunn had a very large wound in his left calf. They were able to bandage it, and he was taken to a hospital in New Brunswick, 20 miles away, where he underwent surgery to salvage his lacerated leg. Recalling the attacks, Joseph Dunn noted, I looked down and saw something dark. Suddenly, I felt a tug, like a big pair of scissors pulling at my leg and bringing me under. I felt as if my leg had gone. After a nearly nine-week hospital stay, he was released, leg intact the lone survivor of the 1916 New Jersey Shore shark attacks, thanks to the bravery and quick thinking of his brother, his friend Jerry, and Thomas Cottrell. At this point, we had five attacks in 12 days, resulting in four deaths, all in young men and boys. Prior to the summer of 1916, sharks were not to be given one thought by the beachgoers of New Jersey. But after 12 terrible days along the New Jersey coast, Panic gripped the hearts of every seaside town and village. A red tide was rising. What could be done to stop it? For answers to this question, and to see how the story of the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks plays out, you'll have to listen to part two of our episode. Be sure to subscribe to Nerd Roamer on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single episode of Nerd Roaming Glory. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at NerdRomer, or check NerdRomer.com for your latest updates on shows, along with show notes, episode summaries, and bonus material. But I can't leave you hanging without a knowledge nugget for you to carry with you before we go. You want some fries with that knowledge nugget? Our knowledge nugget this week is going to be the top five pieces of shark biology trivia. Number one, 
Sharks are totally cartilaginous, meaning that they don't really have true bones the way that other vertebrates do. They have a skeleton that's made of cartilage and connective tissue, which allows them to be lighter, more nimble, more agile, and overall more efficient than other similar bony creatures. It also allows them to do without the gas-filled swim bladders that other bony fish need in order to remain buoyant. Number two, sharks actually have special sensory organs that other animals don't have called electroreceptor organs. The eponym for these electroreceptor organs are the ampullae of Lorenzini, if that ever comes up in bar trivia. These sensory organs detect electromagnetic fields and can help sharks narrow in on floundering or splashing fish, seals, and other creatures from a great distance away, even if they're too far away to be seen or heard. It's a huge advantage when trying to locate prey in the open ocean or in murky waters close to shore. Number three, shark skin is actually quite rough and feels similar to sandpaper. This is because their skin is made up of structures called dermal denticles that are actually grooved in a certain direction to facilitate laminar flow of the water, but sometimes to the touch can feel quite rough. Number four, different shark species actually reproduce in different ways. Sharks have a wide variety and diversity of reproductive modes. Two of the ways that sharks reproduce are through laying eggs and through live birth. Egg-laying sharks are known as oviparous species. These sharks lay eggs that are fully independent and hatch on their own eventually outside the mother's body. These eggs are colloquially sometimes known as mermaid's purses. Examples of oviparous sharks include the cat shark, the swell shark, and the horn shark. Live birth or viviparity is the gestation of young without the use of an egg. So that's a live birth. You can think of that as kind of being like a human birth. By the time the young pop out, they're completely self-sufficient. There are a few well-known species of shark that showcase viviparity, these include hammerheads, bull sharks, and blue sharks. The most common method of reproduction is actually kind of a hybrid of both of these called ovoviviparity. Ovoviparous sharks have eggs that actually hatch in the oviduct within the mother's body. So they hatch before leaving the mother's body. And then a combination of the yolk of the egg along with some fluids secreted by the shark helps provide nutrition to the growing embryo. Eventually, the sharks are born, alive, and of a decent size and fully functional. Fact number five, sharks continuously replace their teeth throughout their lifetimes. Shark teeth are not affixed to jawbone the way they are in humans. They're actually just embedded in the gums, and they're constantly growing new teeth behind their old teeth. And as their old teeth become worn out and break off, they get replaced with new teeth from the back. And some sharks can cycle through their teeth as quickly as, you know, less than two weeks. They can cycle through new teeth, and some they last several months. But that's one of the reasons why in gift shops it's quite common to find shark teeth, I think, is because sharks are just kind of like continuously shedding their teeth, so it's not that unusual to find them. Well, that's our episode for today. Like I said, be sure to tune in to Nerd Roamer for Part 2. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss that episode. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at NerdRomer, and check out NerdRomer.com for bonus material and show notes. Next time, I'm sure you're going to want to listen. We may need a bigger boat. We'll have to see. Keep roaming, nerds.